So some of us might be asking, if we're teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, why are we going all over the Scripture and not focusing on 1 Corinthians 15? Well, we did explain 1 Corinthians 15 the first week that we were looking at it, but what's imperative to understand is that whenever we approach any text in Scripture, that we must ask those fundamental questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how? And that's, I would argue that's precisely what we've been doing in this passage as Paul talks about the kingdom. That's his focus, the kingdom, the king, the reign, the putting all enemies under his feet. And so we've been asking these fundamental questions. Who is the king of this kingdom? Jesus Christ. What's the nature of Christ's kingdom? Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Where is this kingdom located? Psalm 72, 8, he has dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the end of the earth. When was Christ made king? At his resurrection and ascension. It was then when a whole new era began in world history, Matthew 28, 18. Why was Christ made king? Daniel 7, 13 and 14, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. So that's essentially where we've been in our last three messages. We've been asking who, what, where, when, why. Now, um, if you go to our website, thewellboise.com, you can find all of our sermon notes. They're published there, so you can look at these passages in the way that we've been explaining them. Now, this morning, I want to ask another question, another important question, which is, how does Christ advance his kingdom in this world? How does he do that? Uh, Our passage in verse 25 says that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So, how does Christ defeat his enemies in this age? Does he do it gradually Or does he do it suddenly, all at once, at the end? How does he move his kingdom forward? Does he do it incrementally throughout this age? Or is Jesus waiting till the end, to his second coming, when he will usher it all in, all at once? I imagine that most, if not all of us, would answer the latter, that Jesus advances his kingdom all at once at the end of the age. Um. Many of us have been taught, as as we've been hearing, that the world is growing worse and worse and worse. And only when Jesus comes back will he immediately and and suddenly make all things right. Well, I want to offer, again, a different vision of that, and specifically from the Gospels this morning. Today we move to the Gospels to see what the New Testament authors say about how Jesus' kingdom advances in this age. And here is our big idea this morning. The Gospels tell a story of Jesus' kingdom progressively increasing in history such that the mustard tree, mustard seed becomes a tree and the whole lump is leavened. So let's look first of all at our doctrine. And we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, so please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Now, 
Matthew, he primarily had the Jews in mind when he wrote his gospel. It has a very Jewish flavor to the book itself. And his emphasis throughout the book is um, Jesus as king. In my studies this week, I counted 62 times that speak to Jesus being king or speaks about Jesus' kingdom, which is far more than any other book in the New Testament. So let's consider just a small sampling. And I'm going to hit this at you pretty rapid fire. The point here is just to be able to see the emphasis of Jesus' kingdom from 30,000 feet. So look at verse 1 with me. Matthew chapter 1 begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So why are David and Abraham mentioned as Jesus' predecessors? Well, because God told Abraham that kings would come from him. Genesis chapter 17, verse 16. And God told David that he would have a greater son. 2 Samuel 7, 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But this was, not the, um, this was not only the expectation of the Jewish people. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. This was the expectation of even Gentiles, the Gentile wise men. Chapter 2, verse 2, they asked the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Next, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist began his ministry, the very first thing that he started preaching was, look in verses 1 and 2, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look next at chapter 4, verse 17. This is also how Jesus began preaching in his ministry. Um, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, don't turn here, but in chapter 10, verse 7, this was the first thing that he commanded his disciples to preach when they left. Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Taking chapter, chapters 5 through 7 in one, um, in one gulp, Uh, This was the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is teaching there the present reality of his kingdom. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus taught us that his kingdom is the very thing that we should be praying would increase in this age. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next, turn to chapter 12, verse 28. Here, Jesus is casting out demons, and he says, as he cast out demons, it was proof that his kingdom had come. Chapter 12, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Next, turn to chapter 21. Now, as I mentioned in the announcements, uh, today is Palm Sunday. The day when Jesus triumphantly rode into Jerusalem. And so chapter 21 here is that event of Palm Sunday. So look with me at verse 1. 
when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, this prophecy that Jesus is quoting here is from Zechariah chapter 9. Turn two books to your left, real quick, to Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah 9, in verse 9, that's the verse that indicates that Jesus would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. But look at what happens in his kingdom that immediately follows in verses 10 and 11. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Here in this passage, we have Jesus riding into Jerusalem and then bunched all together his reign and his gospel, his delivering people from the blood with his blood of the covenant. So it's the same gospel triumph that we saw last week. In other words, Palm Sunday has massive eschatological significance. Okay, so turn back now to Matthew. Like I said, rapid fire. Um, Matthew chapter 27. Verse 11, here Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate as he's about to be crucified. And what does Pilate ask him? Matthew 27, verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've said it right. Yes, I am king. Finally, turn to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 18. I think this part is easy to miss. On what basis does Jesus send his disciples out into the world? On what ground? Why does he have the right to do this? Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, verse 18 here indicates that something new had occurred at his resurrection. He had now been given all authority. The spoils of victory are his. He has had victory over sin and death, and, and now the devil belongs to him. And, and his newfound authority entails universal dominion over heaven and earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. In earth. That's what we heard in our benediction this morning, isn't it? From Revelation 1.5, that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. 
So that's Matthew at 30,000 feet. Matthew understood from the genealogy all the way to the Great Commission that when Jesus came into the world as God incarnate, a new epoch had begun. The fullness of time had arrived. The kingdom had arrived. So here's the question. Does Matthew give us a clue how this kingdom that began when Jesus came into the world, does he give us a clue how this kingdom makes progress? Does Matthew give us a clue how this kingdom makes progress? Gradually, incrementally, or all at once at the end? And that brings us to our doctrine. The Gospels tell us a story of how Jesus' kingdom progresses increasingly through history such that the mustard seed becomes the tree and the whole lump is leavened. And those are the two parables that I want to look at. So proof number one of our doctrine is that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Proof number one of our doctrine is that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Please turn with me to Matthew 13. Now, Matthew 13 contains seven parables of the kingdom, but we're just going to look at two of them. First one is in Matthew 13, starting in verse 31. Jesus says this, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took And sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. So first of all, we need to deal with that language of the kingdom of heaven. Someone might say, well, the kingdom of heaven is clearly talking about heaven. (laughs) It's called the kingdom of heaven. Um, No, it's not. It's not talking about the eternal state. How do we know that? Well, because the six other parables in this chapter are clearly dealing with this age. Uh, The parable of the sower in verses 1 through 9 refers to how the gospel is received In this age, some believe and receive the seed, some do not and reject the seed. And look at what Jesus says about this in verse 11. Jesus tells his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you can know about this kingdom, disciples, the kingdom of heaven. It's at work now in history. Likewise, in verses 24 through 30, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like the parable of the wheat and the tares. In the end, the wheat will be saved, the tares will be not. What is that referring to? This age. It's not talking about the eternal state. So the kingdom of heaven is not referring to heaven. It's a synonymous term for the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of God. So this phrase means the present spiritual, developmental nature of the kingdom. 
So what does Jesus say about this kingdom? Well, he says that his kingdom began as a grain of mustard. Now, the farmers of Jesus' day, that was, in fact, the smallest seed that they planted in the ground. So when Christ came into the world, his kingdom was the smallest of all kingdoms. He was born in a manger. He was born in an obscure town to nobody parents. He was born a Jew, which were the most hated people of the world. Jesus couldn't have been more obscure. He couldn't have been smaller than he was. But what happens to this smallest of the seeds? Halfway through verse 32, he says, But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. And becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, we could simply just speculate what that means. I could just pontificate, well, this means da-da-da-da-da. That's not how you do exegesis. We have to ask the question, is there anywhere else in the Bible that uses this imagery, that uses this language that we could interpret Jesus' words from? Yes, there is. Please turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel interpreted a dream for Nebuchadnezzar that was very similar to this parable that Jesus told. So Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel what his dream is. Look at verse 10 in Daniel chapter 4. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar brought that to Daniel. How did Daniel interpret it? Well, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. Babylon, the nation of Babylon, it's the tree. It's the great head nation on all the earth. And it provides food and shelter for every other nation. So this, this vision, this God-given vision, revealed the greatness of the Babylonian Empire. It had global dominion. Is there any other place? Yes. The prophet Ezekiel says the exact same thing about the nation of Assyria. In Ezekiel 31, 3 through 6, the prophet reflects back on the greatness of Assyria when it ruled in the ancient world. And what did he say Assyria was like? In Ezekiel 31, 5, he says, Assyria towered high above all the trees of the field. Then in verse 6, all the birds of the heaven made their nests in its bows, and under its shadow lived all great nations. So, From the Old Testament, Babylon and Assyria are compared to towering trees that provided for all other nations. Are there any other passages that talk about this and use this imagery? 
Yes. Turn one more place, Ezekiel chapter 17. Ezekiel chapter 17. The Lord promises to make one more kingdom like this tree that stands above all other nations. Ezekiel 17, starting in verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. So he's going to cut off the top of a tree. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. That should immediately conjure up those images from Daniel chapter 2 of the rock that becomes the mountain. Now, who do you suppose this tender twig is that is being planted on the top of this mountain? Verse 23, on the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the interpretation. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field, all the nations of the world shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. So three images from the Old Testament that talk about this tree that becomes great. The last one specifically speaking about the Messiah. So now turn back to Matthew 13 with that in mind. Jesus isn't just simply, you know, making things up. He he can do that. He's God but he's drawing from Old Testament imagery. In this parable, in verses 31 and 32, it's clear the mustard seed is Christ. He's planted in the field, which is the world. As Christ's kingdom grows, it eventually towers above all other plants, the nations, all the birds of the air, that's the peoples of the world, will find all of their peace and provision in him, in his kingdom. But what Jesus is teaching here is that his spiritual kingdom in this age, before the second coming, will continue to expand and grow until it reaches global dominion, such that all the nations find rest in him, just like those parallels in the Old Testament. Has that happened yet? No, not yet. Not yet it hasn't happened yet. But it will. This is the destiny of Christ's kingdom. That brings us to our second proof. Proof number two, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Look at the very next verse, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So leaven, as you know, is is an ingredient in cooking. It's typically yeast. It makes dough to rise. 
And of course, only a small amount is needed and it will spread and penetrate and transform the whole batch of dough. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, leaven is analogized to represent sin or false doctrine. In fact, we actually saw this in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 when Paul commanded the Corinthians to excommunicate that adulterous man. He tells them why. Because if you don't, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Meaning that if sin is allowed to exist in the congregation unchecked, it will infect the whole congregation. Now, it, it's clear here in this parable that Jesus is not saying that leaven represents sin. The context determines how the word is being used. He explicitly says the kingdom of heaven, Christ's kingdom, is like leaven. Christ's kingdom is not like sin. Clearly, he's actually talking about the transformative power of leaven. Um, how only a small amount can penetrate and spread and transform everything. So let's interpret the parable then. In this parable, the three measures of flour clearly represent the world, just as the field clearly represented the world in the previous parable. Putting it together, we see that when Jesus came into the world, the leaven entered the dough. In the parable, the, the woman hid the leaven in the dough. End of verse 33. What became of the dough? It was all leavened. It was all transformed. The whole batch was leavened. Do you see that this is precisely what Jesus is telling us what will happen in this world? As one author put it, Christ has planted into the world his gospel, the power of God unto salvation. Like yeast, the power of this kingdom will continue to work until when? Until all is leavened. Another author has said here, this is nothing less than a prophecy of the final complete triumph of the gospel that it will diffuse itself through all nations and purify and ennoble all of life. So in summary here, both of these parables show us that Jesus believed that his kingdom is not merely to gain immediate and catastrophic victory at the end. It will do that. I think it's this, this part that we, we just don't see. We've not been taught this. We've not heard this. He's teaching here that his kingdom is gaining victory progressively and gradually throughout history such that it'll crescendo into this absolute victory. The growth of the kingdom began when the king arrived. And though it was small at the beginning, like the mustard seed, yet it will not stop growing and spreading and penetrating and transforming until a total conquest is achieved. So that's our doctrine. Gospels tell the story that Christ's kingdom is progressively increasing in history. So then let's look then to our, our duty. We have two of them. And our first duty is, again, simply to consider 
what theologians of the past have said about what I'm teaching this morning? What have theologians of the past said about this view of history? I feel a burden to, to again say to you that I'm not teaching anything new or novel. Um, I would argue that, that this optimistic eschatology was the predominant view among the great Reformed theologians. Here's a sampling. The Savoy Declaration, written in, in 1658. Writers of that declaration include John Owen, the Puritan, and, and the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. And this is what they wrote, their confession. this was the Confession of Faith for Congregational Churches. It was essentially the Westminster Confession of Faith, scrubbed of its, you know, pre- dirty Presbyterianism and made uh, congregational. Okay, this is what it says. We expect that in the latter days, Antichrist being destroyed, the Jews being called, the adversaries of the kingdom of his dear son broken, the churches of, the, of Christ being enlarged and edified through a free and plentiful communication of light and grace shall enjoy in this world a more quiet, peaceable, and glorious condition than ever have they enjoyed. Charles Hodge 1797 to um, 1898, he was the president of Princeton in its glory days. And he said this, quote, The common doctrine of the church is that the conversion of the world, the restoration of the Jews, and the destruction of Antichrist are to precede the second coming of Christ. Charles Spurgeon 1834 to 1892, the great prince of preachers. Now, he admitted on the one hand that he was unsure how to put the end times events in order, but he was sure about one thing. He was sure about the global triumph of the gospel um, in history. Listen to what he said. This is on his commentary on Psalm 86.9. He said, quote, David was not a believer in the theory that this world will grow worse and worse and that this dispensation will wind up with general darkness and idolatry. Not so. We expect that a day is coming when the dwellers in all lands shall learn righteousness, shall trust in the Savior, shall worship thee alone, O God, and shall glorify thy name. Many people don't know this about Spurgeon, that he actually believed that more people would be in heaven than in hell because of the triumph of the gospel at the end. One of America's greatest um, theologians, B.B. Warfield, 1851 to 1921, he was often called the spoiler of liberalism. He wrote this, quote, according to the New Testament, this time in which we live is precisely the time in which our Lord is conquering the world to himself. And it is the completion of this conquest which, as it marks the completion of his redemption work, so it sets the time for his return to earth to consummate his kingdom and establish it in its eternal form, end quote. Now, I could quote just tons more. The point of me quoting these, these theologians is only to demonstrate that this view is not some minority, obscure view in history. 
And nor is it the view of liberals who didn't take the Bible seriously. None of these men were liberals. And that brings us then to our second duty, which is that we need to reevaluate how we think about history. We need to reevaluate how we think about history. The most common objection to what I've been preaching is this. History proves you to be wrong. Look how bad it's getting. I actually used to say that. I dismissed this view out of hand because just look at history. History obviously shows that the world is getting way worse. Two answers to that. First, we should never, ever, ever formulate our theology by what we see in the world. We don't formulate our views of marriage. We don't formulate our views of sex um, or of any other thing by what the world says. We don't go like this. Uh, What does the world say? Well, maybe we should navigate towards that. The same thing is true about eschatology. The Bible alone is the final authority for every type of theology under the sun. If the Bible says that history will end in global triumph for the gospel, then it will happen regardless of what history has said thus far. And that brings us to my second response. How do we respond to this idea that the history is getting worse and worse? Well, I would offer you this thought. History actually demonstrates that the world is growing better because of the gospel of Jesus Christ advancing. History actually proves the mustard seed is growing and the leaven is leavening the lump. Let's consider one example from the Bible. Consider the book of Acts from 30,000 feet. How did the book of Acts begin? The book of Acts began with a, a handful of disciples huddled together in an upper room praying. How did the book of Acts end? The Apostle Paul fearlessly preaching the gospel before Caesar in Rome. What happened between those two events? Thousands upon thousands were converted, and even the enemies of the gospel said in Acts 17.6, these men have turned the world upside down. Did Christ's kingdom advance in the book of Acts? You bet it did. Were there dark times in the book of Acts? Were there times when the church was was persecuted and Christians were put to death? Yes. But the overall trajectory was advance. You see, the problem with evaluating history is that we often look at too small a period of time. We look in little 50-year blips or little 100-year blips. That is not a good way of judging history. Um, (laughs) Do you look at your child and say, gee, Johnny, you didn't grow since yesterday. You must not be growing. (laughs) That's that's absurd. You have to look over a longer period of time. And that's how we should look at history. 
Consider if we were to, to judge the book of Acts wrongly. Let's just look at one verse in the book of Acts. In, in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Saul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And if we did a full stop right there, we might conclude that the church is shrinking, that things are getting worse and worse and worse, Right? Christians are being drugged off by this persecutor. But what if we look at a wider period of time? What happened to that persecutor? Christ got a hold of him. He ended up writing half of the New Testament. He ended up becoming the greatest preacher outside of Christ in the history of the world. We judge in entirely too small of samples. Beloved, is the world better than it was 500 years ago? You have a smartphone in your pocket that demonstrates the answer is yes. What are the conditions necessary for technology like that to exist? Freedom. Gospel freedom. Western civilization was built by the Reformation. The, the, um, the, the country of the United States of America was birthed through the Great Awakening. Economics and, and capitalism, all of those things are the fruit of not the enlightenment. Those things are the fruit of gospel truths being applied in the world. Has the world gotten better than, than uh, has the world gotten better since Christ ascended into heaven? Has it? You know, Ken Gentry points out the irony of the objection that history is getting worse and worse. This is what he says. Here we are in a free land, sitting in our comfortable Bible-believing church, dressed in our Sunday best, holding one of our many personal Bibles, the world's best-selling book, in our hands, debating whether or not there has been any advance in the conditions of Christianity since its persecuted inception 2,000 years ago. Has there been ups and downs? Of course there has. But what's the overall trajectory of the world since the resurrection of Christ? Victory. That, that is not me sticking my head in the sand and, say, and, and, and avoiding suffering and sin. There are horrible things happening in the world today. But guess who is marching against those lands? King Jesus. The other mistake that we tend to practice when we're thinking about history, is we, we adopt a sort of geographical prejudice. A geographical prejudice. Um, so we reason like this. Well, it's going really bad in our country, so the whole world must be in the same bad shape as we are. That's bad reasoning. <laughs> do we do that about our own homes? <laughs> do we do that about our own churches? Um, do you realize that even if we were to look at the 20th century with its two world wars, the Western civilization looked pretty bad. What was happening in Africa? The gospel was absolutely exploding. Statistics show that in the year 1900, there were only 9 million Christians in Africa. 9 million Christians in Africa in 1900. Do you know how many there were in the year 2000? 380 million Christians. The Christian Post um, in an article entitled, Fastest Growing 
um, of Christianity in Africa, they reported that, quote, further statistics show that according to the projection of the current trend, Africa's congregation is likely to grow by another 200 million people by the year 2025. Someone might say, though, but, but Pastor Josh, what about those two world wars? Doesn't that demonstrate that conditions are worse and worse in the West? Two answers. Number one, who won those wars? Uh, as one author asked, did the world become a more dangerous place for Christianity because of the defeat of Japan and Germany? Or did it become a safer place for Christianity because of the defeat of Japan and Germany? And the second answer to those world wars, I would just say, is that the scripture does not teach that Christ's kingdom will experience unbroken and steady upward growth. It doesn't teach that the next tomorrow would be better than yesterday. It doesn't teach that. It just teaches that the second coming, uh, before the second coming at some point, Jesus will win the world. The advance of, of Christ's kingdom in history, it can be compared to a war. At the end of a war, clearly one side gains the victory. But that doesn't mean that the victor during the course of the war never experienced setbacks or never experienced defeats in particular battles. Of course they did. But they won the war at the end. So beloved, consider carefully how you evaluate history. Listen to what Dr. James Snowden said in 1921. These are such helpful words. The true way of judging the world is to compare its present with its past condition and not in, the, in which direction it is moving. Is it going backward or forward? Is it getting worse or better? It may be wrapped uh, gloomy in gloomy twilight, but it is it the twilight of the evening or is it the twilight of the morning? Are the shadows deepening into starless night or are they fleeing before the rising sun? One glance at the world as it is today compared with what it was 10 or 20 centuries ago shows us that it has swept through a wide arc and it is moving toward the morning. Do you hear what he's saying? It might be dark right now, but is it because it's getting darker in night or because it's moving closer to the morning. I think history proves the latter. So then let's close then with our delight. The most delightful thing about what I've been presenting is how Christ's kingdom advances. We've already made the argument that Christians, of course, should be involved in culture, that we should build schools and send missionaries and pray for revival, that we should be involved politically, that we should raise godly offspring, that we should be faithful in our vocation. And I would continue to say that all of those things are good um, and necessary, but they are completely insufficient to advance the kingdom. None of those things advance the kingdom of Christ by themselves. The kingdom, as one author has said, 
expands not through evolutionary forces. It expands not through human wisdom or political strategy or military conquest. Beloved, if we put our hope um, in politics uh, to transform the world, then what have we done? We've deified the state. Um, We've given her more power than God. The world can never be changed through politics, ever, ever. The world can only be transformed through the power of the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the very power of God. It's it's what breaks into the world. Christ and him crucified, him buried, him raised from the dead. That's the power of God. And when that's preached, it breaks down strongholds. that's That's why you're here today. You didn't come, you haven't been coming to church because of some political affiliation. You, you've come to church because Jesus conquered you. He, he made you his own through his blood and righteousness. You were conquered through the power of the gospel. And, and, and what, I want, what I want to show us is, is that the power of this gospel is aimed at something bigger than just you. What is the power of the, of the gospel aimed at? It's aimed at saving the world. L- listen, listen to John 3, 16 and 17. Try to listen to it with new ears. Try to listen to it as if you're listening to it for the first time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did you hear it? This verse, verse 17 specifically, speaks of the intention. It speaks of God's motive in sending his son into the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Rather, his intention, his motive, was that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to save the world. The world. Now, as as reform folk, we rightly refute universalism. This does not mean that that Jesus came to save every single person. Clearly not. But but if we simply stop at making that refutation, um, we, we miss the glory of this verse. This verse certainly is not teaching that Jesus will save every person, but it is teaching us the grand design of Christ's mission, namely that one day the world as a system, as a cosmos, will be redeemed. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How can I make such a claim that the world is going to be saved through Jesus? How can I say that? Because that's what the Old Testament says. That's what God said in his covenant to Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what God promised in the Psalms, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. 
This is what God promised in the prophets. Isaiah 2.2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and all the nations shall flow to it. See, John 3.17 here is simply reaffirming what the Old Testament has already laid down. That the mustard seed really will become the greatest tree in the earth. That the nations really will find their rest and hope in him. That the secret leaven will really penetrate the whole batch of dough. That Jesus really will save the world. That's the power and love of Christ in the gospel. Power that we're not even beginning to grasp yet. You could experience that power and love of the gospel this morning. Perhaps you're here this morning and, and, and you find yourself backsliding further and further into sin. You find your conscience burdened because you're living a double life. You find your heart being more and more hardened and you feel like you're trapped and there's no way to escape. Well, this is the good news of the gospel this morning. Run to him and you will experience the power of God in the gospel. That he can break you free from those sins that you've returned to. And there's no reason for you to be discouraged. Yes, it's true that you have offended his infinite holiness again. Yes, that's true. And yes, it's true that God's eyes are too pure to look at your filthy iniquity. That's true also. But don't you realize that he has already overcome your sin on the cross? That's what the promise of the gospel is. In this is love. Not that he Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is what we need to hear, that the same gospel that saved us at the beginning of our Christianity is the same gospel that saves you today and tomorrow. You don't get saved and then say, you know what, I think I got this handled from here. No, you need the power of God. Christian, are you discouraged this morning? Run to the power of God. Run to the gospel again. Or perhaps you've never come to the Savior. Perhaps you don't follow Jesus, that you don't believe on his name. Well, dear friend, you can be washed clean today. All of your guilt, all of your condemnation, all of that accusation that you hear in the back of your head, in the depths of your heart, it can all be taken away. That's why Jesus came into the world to take away sin, to take away iniquity, to carry it into the land of forgetfulness, to throw it into the depths of the sea so that it can never be carried out again. You can be covered in his blood and righteousness this morning so that you can stand before the Father on the last day. You could be made a new crea- creation, spotless, clean, washed. can be given everlasting life you can belong to him you can call him lord and master and savior and friend and dear lamb of god and precious savior run to him flee to him hope in him the scripture promises that if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and you believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved There's no other power on earth that can do that. 
trust in Christ. Let's pray.